It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Shannon Bream. I'm Tom Shalou. I'm Maria Bartiromo, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, August 24th, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The Milwaukee Bucks Arena was home to the first 2024 Republican presidential debate hosted by Fox News. It was tense, it was loud, and among eight candidates on the stage, the fighters were heard the most. I thought that Pence, Ramaswamy, and Haley each were able to highlight the real policy divides and maybe even sort of a larger uh, philosophical divides that are in the Republican Party. And Lisa Brady. Transgender issues are fueling more debate over parents' rights in schools. There is a prevailing sentiment that the federal constitutional rights will trump local laws. That is not necessarily true. It just depends on the manner in which the specific law is being analyzed. And I'm Jimmy Fallon. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Surf Stadium in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, was the site of the first Republican presidential debate in the 2024 cycle. I've had enough already tonight of a guy who sounds like ChatGPT standing up here. And the last person in one of these debates, Brett, who stood in the middle of the stage and said, What's a skinny guy with an odd last name doing up here was Barack Obama, and I'm afraid we're dealing with the same type of amateur standing on stage tonight. Come over and give me a hug. <laughs> give me a hug just same, like you did to Obama. Same type of amateur. The pressure was on the man who's been number two in the polls behind former president, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who took executive action during some moments of the debate. So we want to start on this with a show of hands. Do you believe in... Human behavior is causing climate change. Raise your hand if you do. Look, look, we're not school children. Let's have the debate. But former Vice President Mike Pence, behind in polling, was calling people out, especially tech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy. We just need government as good as our people. Well, Mike, I think the difference is you might have, some others like you may have on the stage, it's morning in America speech. It is not morning in America. We live in a dark moment, and we have to confront the fact that we're in an internal sort of cold cultural civil war. The latest Fox News poll from last week found 70% of Americans are unhappy with how things are going in the country. It also found the economy is the biggest concern. 38% said that's the top issue. 11% said the border and immigration. That was tied with guns. 9% said climate change. All topics of discussion during the debate, along with abortion and funding Ukraine. You're watching America less than you have no foreign policy experience, and it shows. And you know what? It shows. Some candidates left perhaps more confident, some less. But was it a candidate or a moment that stood out the most? I think you have to say Nikki Haley, right? She came in here with um, a pretty big deficit when you look at the polling. And she was able to find her moments. Jared Halpern is Fox News Radio's congressional and White House correspondent. And Josh Krasauer is Fox News Radio's political analyst and editor-in-chief of Jay Insider. She had 
that opening line uh, early in the debate where she talked about uh, the Margaret Thatcher line and when you want mm -hmm. something talked about, you ask men. When you want something done, you ask women. That got a very big uh, applause line here. And then I think the moment of the debate that certainly got the loudest here in the arena uh, was her back and forth with Ramaswamy where she said, uh, you know, you don't have any foreign policy experience, and it shows. This place was on its feet. It, it was almost shaking in the arena. And that, by the way, was a component of this debate that I really liked. There were several thousand Republican voters here in the arena. We basically got a bellwether of lines and mm. policy reactions in real time that was very, very fascinating from my perspective. And Josh, anything that's not to you, the most to you? Is it a person or a moment? Well, look, I, I think the big picture is that Trump is still the undisputed frontrunner in this Republican fight, even off the stage. And uh, look, I agree with Jared that Nikki Haley, I, I've been trying to figure out, I think there are three Republicans on that stage who are well-liked by the, the, the whole Republican you know, cross-section of Republican Party voters. And each of them, you know, had a chance to kind of have their moment and maybe emerge as the leading Trump alternative. And those three are DeSantis, uh, Nikki Haley, and Tim Scott. Uh, I think by, of those three, Nikki Haley clearly had the best debate. Ron DeSantis was sort of uh, overshadowed by Vivek Ramaswamy. And, uh, you know, I think he did fine. He got his talking points in, but didn't really uh, make the case uh, for why he is seen as a threat to, to Donald Trump. And, you know, and, and Tim Scott was pretty invisible himself and, and, you know, was sticking to his own talking points and didn't really engage in the back and forth that that dominated some of the, the 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 discussions tonight. So yeah, I mean, look, I think Haley. Keep an eye on Haley's polling. I think she could end up getting a little bit of a bump out of this debate. Uh, but if not, you know, Trump is, is is looking as strong as ever, and it's hard to see how he's going to be unseated from that poll position unless his legal problems, uh, you know, get even get you know, unless he can't run legally when it comes to twenty twenty four. Josh, Josh, just to that point, you know, just looking at the polls, Republican primary polls have, as you noted, and as we all know, Donald Trump at the top if the alternative going into the debate night was supposed to be Ron DeSantis is it still or is it Vivek Ramaswamy did did he sort of take away that mantle of I'm I'm more Trumpy than you if you're looking for an alternative to Ron DeSantis so, so, so Ramaswamy is very much an acquired taste and look I think he appealed to the very solid share of voters in the Republican Party that identify with Trump, identify with the populist MAGA movement that don't yeah. want to see the U.S. involved in Ukraine, that think that the, the country is falling apart and it, it's we're on the brink of a civil war. You know, if you're in that in that in that side of the party, Ramaswamy's message probably was pretty compelling. Uh, the problem is that he's running against like I, it's hard to see him defeating Trump, ultimately the name of the game, at least in 2024, is to win the nomination. So if he's essentially running as sort of the, the Trump protege, I don't know how he actually defeats Trump. He, you know, right. he was the one Republican who said he uh, wanted to pardon Trump and, and didn't take any of his legal issues seriously. So, you know, I think Ramaswamy's limitation, it's hard to see him um, uh, defeating Trump. And it's, you know, maybe he was running for vice president, but but ultimately it's hard to, to go go beat the front runner when you're, you're defending him. Uh, but look, th there is a faction of the party, a sizable one, that likes what Ramaswamy is selling. But look, as far as the Republicans who, there are enough Republicans that want 
to move on from Trump. They like him, but they want someone more electable, perhaps. They want to move on from the baggage and the, the chaos. And then there is that anti-Trump faction that, that Chris Christie and maybe Mike Pence tonight uh, reflected. So if there's any Republican that can consolidate the non-Trump base, and it's a very hard task to do because you're, you're, you literally, you know, have to do, everything has to go right for, for said candidate. But look, that, that's the big question going forward. Is, is someone like a DeSantis yeah. able to do that? If DeSantis can't, could Nikki Haley be that person? But uh, tonight I didn't see anyone really um, stand out in particular. I think Nikki Haley was, was the person who had the strongest debate, though. I wondered if there was a theme, Jared. Like, was it Mike Pence and Nikki Haley having these moments with Vivek, especially Pence, you know, going after him and, and sort of this, you know, this case about the different generations and to Josh's point, you know, Mike Pence saying, uh, you know, believe in America, believe in Americans and Vivek saying that that's, you know, you're, you're shining, you know, good morning in America on a hill theme isn't, isn't you know, relevant anymore, Mike Pence. It, it, this is a dark moment in America. What, did that sort of capture anything? Did you sense a theme in, in any of the discussion? I thought that Pence, Ramaswamy, and Haley each were able to highlight the real policy divides and maybe even sort of a larger uh, philosophical divides that are in the Republican Party right now, right? You had the foreign policy divide that was very clear between Ramaswamy and Haley. You had uh, a pretty sizable divide in how the federal government ought to legislate against abortion between Haley and Pence. And then you had, to your point, that larger generational question, who are we going to hand the baton off to between uh, Pence and Ramaswamy. And so I thought the three of them were the most interesting candidates on the stage simply because each of them in their own way kind of showed what this debate and what this campaign mm. is about. And it's something that parties go through generally when they are out of party. You saw this four years ago when you had kind of Joe Biden trying to, to hold the moderate wing against all of these more progressive forces and it was a real debate about the future that the democratic party was going to move in that's the debate that we heard tonight right which direction is party going to move in on foreign policy on the question of abortion on the question of donald trump right all of that was discussed and you saw some pretty big differences in how each candidate answered those questions so do, briefly to both of you, and then one more question for Josh. Do, do you think voters heard what they needed to hear for, for the first debate? I mean, knowing this is a longer process, was, was this the right, you know, right foot uh, to, to begin this process on? Or, or, you know, are we missing something here? Josh, to you first. Well, look, I thought it was a great thorough debate touching upon every every issue, especially the the ones that Jared was referring to that divide elements of the, the Republican Party. I mean, we, we saw one of the fascinating things was when you look at the polls, at least half of the Republican voters kind of hail from the Trump Ramaswamy DeSantis wing of the party. And, and you could hear that on every issue that Jared was just talking about, foreign policy and America's role in the world and, you know, whether the America's in decline and, and all the, all, all, a lot of trade and, and, and immigration as well. Uh, at the same time, like the majority of Republicans on this stage 
were from like the traditional wing of the party. It felt like there there wasn't a lot of difference between you know the pre twenty six iteration of the Republican Party and the mm. post Trump era of the Republican Party. And you know something's got to give. I mean, I think that's why Trump leaning by such substantial margins in the polls because whatever Trump, you know, the, the, the populism, the MAGA movement, the in your face style that Trump has sold and and, and governed when he was president as. That's what, but that that's what Republicans want. That's that's a new market. That's the new demand for Republican voters. And look, that may be ultimately the reason why any none of these candidates uh, aren't aren't really catching fire because they're reflecting the values, the principles, the policies of the traditional Republican Party, the traditional conservative movement, and. Something's going to have to give, and we'll see if the, the numbers move after tonight's debate. But it, it may be hard to, to crack that uh, fundamental divide that a lot of Republican Party voters want the Trump style of politics. And that's the, that, that, that's the yeah, challenge of, of – and that's the challenge of primaries. You have to win over the base of your party and then try and also win a national election, yeah. right? And those are very different strategies. And that's the, the challenge and the needle that some of these candidates are trying to thread, making the case that they are with Trump on a lot of these policies, but also more electable. Keep in mind, the last two elections we've had in this country, Democrats overperformed in large measure because voting blocks that had generally been pretty conservative or at least pretty Republican turned away away from the Republican Party in the suburbs and uh, women and mm -hmm. the abortion issue. You've seen how that's kind of shifted the, the landscape politically. And so it does present a challenge when the Republican base is still very much in line with the former president. But there are concerns from within the party that maybe that's not as electable as it was eight years ago or four years ago. Okay, you both get to answer this with one name each. Who is who left the debate Wednesday night and had the most work to do realistically realistically thinking that they could that they could compete who has the most work to do to, to stay relevant and to keep moving forward Tim Scott I was gonna say Tim Scott okay all right we'll leave it there Josh Grassauer Jared Halpern thank you so much for joining thank you thanks Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. This is Jimmy Fallon with your Fox News commentary coming up. Three New Jersey school districts want to require that parents be notified if a child wants to change their gender identity. But they can't enforce those new policies for now after a superior court judge sided with the state, granting a preliminary injunction. In suing the districts, the state argued that the policies could violate New Jersey's anti-discrimination law and students' rights by discriminating against them on the basis of gender identity or expression, and that schools should be safe havens for trans students. This is not about outing students if they have a confidential discussion with a, a school guidance counselor or a teacher about feelings they might be having. Bruce Padula is a lawyer for two of the school districts, Manalapan and Middletown. Our policies in Middletown said that if you wanted to change your formal student record or use a different restroom or play on a different team other than your uh, biological sex, 
that we would notify your parents. He says schools should not be required to hide information from parents and that in every other aspect of operating a school district, parent communication is the primary focus. A similar notification proposal generated heated debate in another community, Coltsneck, in June. A K-8 child who believes in the Tooth Fairy, Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, does not have the emotional or intellectual maturity to decide what their parents should and should not know. Coltsneck tabled the proposal, noting legal challenges in other districts. Advocates on both sides of the issue turning out at the Monmouth County Courthouse this month. The attorney for the Marlboro Board of Education says they're disappointed the court granted the state's request for an injunction until the matter is fully resolved at the New Jersey Division on Civil Rights, which could take years. The districts can appeal. New Jersey's attorney general says the state agrees that parents should be involved in important decisions about their children and that the lawsuits are only aimed at reinstating previous policies, allowing parents to be informed based on individualized assessments of a child's needs and circumstances. This is the issue of parents' rights is raised more frequently around the country. Oh, certainly, because there's absolute tension between the child's rights to be in a safe, inclusive environment. Attorney and legal analyst Mercedes Colwin is founding partner of the New York offices of Gordon and Reese. And of course, the schools are required by law to have that type of environment for the children that are in their care versus what the parents have continuously argued, that they have the 14th Amendment right to care for their children. And caring for their children also means to ensure that they're having the proper education. Now, in the state of New Jersey, the state has argued that an old policy on notification about transgender issues wasn't controversial. It allowed parental notification, but it didn't require it. How big a line have these three New Jersey districts crossed in trying to require parental notification? So one of the things that they're looking at, at least that the government's looking at, is to whether or not there's been a violation of an existing anti-discrimination law, which is called LAD, and the laws against discrimination. And what the government has said is that by allowing parental notification, there's actually a violation of that anti-discrimination laws because the children's rights to be free of being targeted and discriminated against are not being adhered to by allowing the parent to know of their child's transitioning. Now, is it difficult to prove that the anti-discrimination law is being violated? Would it be difficult for the state to prove that? Well, you have to show some some level of harm. Obviously, it's part of when you bring a discrimination case, just generally, you have to establish that harm has, has ensued. So for the state to then argue that there is a compelling state interest for them to adhere to the laws against discrimination locally by allowing there not to be any parental notification of their child transitioning within the school district, it will be per se something that they can argue pretty effectively. And the harm that they can establish in court is that if the per- the parents are notified of their child's transitioning, they would they are concerned that the child may be affected in their schooling, may be bullied, may be targeted, may not even be accepted within their family. So that's a, a global overwhelming argument that the state can argue to adhere to LAD and therefore not and not notify the parents of any transitioning of their children.
it sounds like it really, in part at least, comes down to the individual circumstance for the student and what their home life is like. I mean, is there legally a way to strike a balance between keeping parents informed and also protecting kids who are in a vulnerable population, often at elevated risk for for violence and even suicide? It's a great question. It really is a balancing test, and it's a very difficult one, which is why you see cases rise and fall based on the individual circumstances. You're exactly right. There can be an argument made by the parent saying they should be notified and said, we have a very inclusive home. We are accepting of our child that wants to transition. We have therapists lined up. We have any every resource available to our child to ensure that they will feel safe by knowing that there's been a transition, at least transitioning taking place. So they can make that valid argument and defeat an argument that somehow in theory, the child would be put at risk by notifying the parent. In California, the Marietta Valley Unified School District just recently passed a policy allowing parents to be notified if their child is transgender. The district trustee who proposed it says he's not concerned about legal challenges because the constitutional rights of parents supersede state law. Is that always true or does it vary depending on the state and the state law? Now you're going back to my con law days in law school. So there is a prevailing sentiment that that the federal constitutional rights will trump local laws. That is not necessarily true. It just depends on the manner in which the specific law is being analyzed. So there's three types of analysis. There's a strict scrutiny, which if if the law is somehow found to be unconstitutional, strict scrutiny is one way certainly to say that that it can't be defeated because you have to show a strict scrutiny when you look at the laws. There's intermittent scrutiny, and then there's a rational basis scrutiny, which is the one that's being utilized for all these trans gender type issues across the nation. And that's when there isn't a defined constitutional right. Right now, the constitutional right that is being argued by the parents is under the 14th Amendment. And under the 14th Amendment, it says that individuals, if they're to lose something by the government, in this case, parents are losing their right to be notified of their child transitioning within the school, they should be afforded due process. And due process, you can see the machinations of due process, a hearing, some form where they can establish uh, evidence in, in support of being notified, and then the government would then put forth evidence as to why notification should not be required. And that's one of the arguments that is being set forth by the parents is that their 14th Amendment rights are being violated when they're not being notified. It's a catch-all amendment. It's not one that has the defined laws that you see when you look at the Constitution on its face. And because it's catch-all, this lower standard, the rational basis standard, is applied. And because it's a less of a standard, these laws, and it goes back to your point earlier, it really will depend on case-by-case basis. It will also depend on the underlying circumstances. It'll depend on the arguments. It may even depend on the jurisdiction. And ultimately, because these laws have to be analyzed so specifically and so carefully, it may even turn on the words that are being used within the laws themselves. So a lot of circumstances, a lot of analysis, and ultimately, it may turn on one or two words or, frankly, 
the facts surrounding the child's circumstances at home. And and for such an emotional and, you know, really a complex issue, the California Attorney General announced a civil rights investigation into the Chino Valley District um, over one of these notification policies. And, and one official likened that to blackmail, you know, an effort to chill such efforts in other districts. How could that state civil rights probe play out? Do they have legal grounds for that? Well, they do because they're an enforcement agency, and I, I work with enforcement agencies across the country, so do my partners within the firm. It's something defense attorneys are used to. They understand the powers enforcement agencies have, certainly as the attorney general would have very broad, significant powers. They can certainly do that. But it can't be so arbitrary. It can't be capricious. It could, if, And if anybody feels aggrieved by an investigation that's being done by the government. They have remedies. They can go into court. They can argue they're being targeted. They can argue that it's arbitrary. They can argue just what you said earlier in in your question. It could have a chilling effect, and that's not what the laws are, are, are here for. The laws are here to be interpreted and applied. So they, there are remedies for anybody that feels that they're being targeted because they're voicing their concerns about parental notification. I wanted to ask you about one other case in Maryland where a federal appeals court recently tossed out a fight over some of these parental rights questions, but really on a technicality, ruling the parents didn't have standing to bring the challenge because their children weren't transgender. But part of the counter argument was, how would they have known? Because the policy in Montgomery County required a student's consent to notify their parents of gender issues. Is this ultimately heading to the U.S. Supreme Court? It may be because there is a constitutional issue, which is the 14th Amendment, as being articulated by the parents who want to be notified of their children being transitioned. It'll go to the interpretation as to whether there is a compelling interest in ensuring the privacy of those students for the reasons that we've talked about, whether there's anti-discrimination laws that have been triggered, the privacy of the children, the child themselves, whether they're at risk of being targeted or bullied. So there's so many factors, it seems pretty ripe for this to go up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ultimately can make the final decision as to how these cases are interpreted. Is this something that could get on a fast track, if you will, or would it take, you know, years to get to the highest court? It depends. Now, in order to get to the highest court, there has to be the cert. Uh, which is a permission to proceed in the U.S. Supreme Court, and it's up to the justices to decide whether this case is to be heard. So there are procedural hurdles. So there is there is no effective right to go to U.S. Supreme Court. is by permission only, by writ only. And therefore, there, there are some procedural hurdles that will get to the, to the case to go there. Ultimately, it'll be whether or not it could take a couple of years. It could be the fact that they would like to see what other districts, it may not be ripe now, but it might be ripe in a year or two when there's multiple different determinations by different jurisdictions and different districts around the country. When you have a case that has different outcomes around the country based on the jurisdiction and based on the constitutional issue, That type, that case is pretty ripe for the U.S. Supreme Court to step in and to evaluate it. Attorney and legal analyst Mercedes Colwin, thank you as always for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Meet the American who... 
change the face of naval warfare. John Philip Holland, a brilliant self-taught engineer, was born on the west coast of Ireland in 1841. However, the exact date of his birth is disputed. His father was a lighthouse keeper and a coast guardman who passed away when Holland was just four years old while famine struck. Before immigrating to America in 1873, Holland taught mathematics and music at the Christian Brothers Coven just north of Dublin. During his residence at the school, he designed a submersible mechanical dock that could walk, swim, and dive underwater, the precursor for his later invention. In 1875, Holland submitted his first submarine designs to the U.S. Navy. However, they were turned down after being deemed unworkable. His first submergible, as he called his technology, sank during testing. His second model successfully launched in 1881 while being tested in New York City. The U.S. Naval Institute says the technology frightened fishermen in the Long Island Sound when the submergible made appearances from beneath the waves. After spending nearly two decades on improvements in 1897, Holland launched the first submarine with the power to run submerged for any considerable distance. His sixth prototype proved to be a triumph, and the Navy purchased what's now known as the USS Holland on April 11, 1900. And the Holland was commissioned as the first U.S. Navy submarine on October 12th. Holland found himself working with a new business partner, Isaac Rice, a pioneer in electric automobiles. Rice filled the streets of New York City with electric taxi cabs before the internal combustion vehicles replaced those fueled by battery. Holland would only enjoy success in name only. Rice controlled the business and the profits. Two weeks before he died on August 12, 1914, the Austro-Hungarian Empire declared war on Serbia, plunging Europe into World War I. On September 22nd, German submarine U-9 sank three British battlecruisers in less than an hour in a battle that would help redefine naval warfare forever with the man that spent his life devoted to submarine power dying in obscurity. You can go to the lifestyle section at foxnews.com to find more of these incredible stories. For the Fox News Rundown, I'm Gianna Gelosi. The Fearless and Proud podcast series looks at acts of bravery and strength by women. And in this first season, we look at women who played important roles in the Civil War. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Jimmy Fallon. What's on your mind? So here's a story you might have missed. While the Republicans were debating, Trump was getting indicted and Biden was getting ready for another nap. Dick Sporting Goods just announced a 23% decrease in profits due to shoplifting. Now, some would argue that charging me 150 bucks to buy a baseball mitt for my kid is a crime unto itself. But under the law, Dick's is not the bad guy. It's the coach who's given the steal sign. Sadly, this is becoming a trend all over the country, where our nation's retailers have seen a 26% increase in shoplifting over the past year alone. We don't know where these crooks are running off to, but if they were smart, they'd hide out at a New York Mets game, because nobody ever catches anything there. Sadly, that joke also applies to my Yankees. But the truth is, themes don't have to hide anywhere, because police are severely understaffed around the country, and stores are powerless to do anything on their own. Just last week, we saw a mob steal over $300,000 worth of merchandise at a Nordstrom's in California. Now, granted, $300,000 is like two pairs of jeans at Nordstrom's these days, but it's not just clothes getting carried out of the store. Two weeks earlier, a group of masked thieves pulled a smash and grab at an L.A. jewelry store that netted over $500,000 worth of gold and diamonds. Of course, no heist was bigger than the push to defund the police by liberal politicians in the summer of 2020. 
Because by convincing cities to cut police budgets, we've emboldened criminals in ways we've never seen before. Growing up, there was a saying that crime doesn't pay. But these days, nobody pays because they ain't worried about getting caught. Even more ridiculous is the fact that every Democrat who wanted to cut police budgets has police protection for themselves. Heck, Missouri Congresswoman Cori Bush not only got caught spending over 200000 for armed security, but she actually married one of the guys in her detail. Now, granted, that might seem like a vengeful act after they've been together a couple of years, but the point is, she was full of it. So was my congresswoman, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Although in her defense, New York City is so liberal they wanted to defund the cop and the village people. Which is why if we're going to get all this shoplifting under control, we don't need better metal detectors in stores. We need better BS detectors in politics. Because reelecting these phonies will only make our society more lawless, leading to more cops for the rest of them and less cops for us. And that would be the biggest crime of all. Be sure to listen to Fox Across America weekdays from noon to 3 on the Fox News app and foxacrossamerica.com. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.